you know, as communities, we don't really care what one individual knows or holds in their head, you know, their expertise or their knowledge or anything like that. Like anything that I know is that's community property that belongs to my community. And so that's known in the community and that's part of our community knowledge. And that will be passed on to the next generation. Um, so our community still has all this knowledge. There's no single individual who knows it all, but uh, it still resides in our communities. And basically, you know, engaging and belonging in a community like that and engaging an entire community of minds is the only way you can unlock that or access it. Mm. You know, so I guess, I guess when you figure out, you know, how to come as a community, you know, uh, to sit with a community, then, then yeah, it's, it's all there for you. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome to, to our next guest. This is somebody I've been looking forward to jamming with since our paths first crossed um, earlier this year, uh, Tyson Yonka Porter, who is a an Australian uh, and indigenous scholar and, and human, and also writer of the book Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Um, and in generally all around funny as shit, interesting fellow. So Tyson, thanks, thanks welcome. For calling, thanks for calling me human there, Jamie. It's the least I can do. <laughs> you know. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so I mean, you know, I, I delightfully and deliberately did not have an agenda for our conversation. Um, I know there's some themes that I'm absolutely curious to pick your brain on. Um, yeah. But, but other than that, I mean, we we've read each other's books, so we kind of have a sense of the commonalities and the divergences there on a on a pure detail level. But it's also I've I've found myself referencing you in podcasts about the stuff I've written as much or more often than any other writer and thinker out there, especially because you're you're holding such a unique you know a unique perspective in the kind of chattering classes conversation. And I know, and I've noticed that for sure one of the examples I've I've this popped to mind several times is was you're just your discussion of um, gender and violence and the idea of public violence versus private violence. And, and I just never even heard remotely that concept before. And, and it also feels strangely relevant as we're also engaging in a lot of, you know, and and you've made the case of public violence is healthy. It's mediated and buffered. We get it out. Right, it's private yeah. violence that can fester, and that 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 can obviously you know into domestic violence and other things. And on the other hand, we're seeing sort of wildly unhealthy public violence, flame wars, canceling, grievance culture, you know, all of these kind of things. So, can can we just kind of wade into that and try starting to tease apart um, when is violence healthy, vital, necessary, a means of discharging trauma? And when is violence, public or private, unhealthy and destructive and, and, and a mode of instilling trauma? What are your thoughts there? 
Well, it's it's a it's a stumbling block for everybody, and I I, I get a lot of shit for uh, for the stuff I say about violence, but in this space, everybody's talking about um, you know distributed everything. You know, people uh, talking up complexity, uh, complexity thinking, uh, systems thinking, complexity science, you know, all this sort of stuff. Everybody, blockchain, Bitcoin, all the tech nerds, all the tech utopians, all the regenerative villages, you know, intentional community people, all the, uh-huh. um, I, I'm just trying to define the space here, the um, chemically assisted sort of I know, mind I think, expansion. I think bougie weight folks is a decent placeholder. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, 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 because there's a, there is a, there's a real niche here um, that you belong to and I'm sort of barking around the edges of, um, you know, that I'm really interested in, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, game B, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger kind of thing, you know, the kind of, I don't know, it sort of blurs across into the edges of the intellectual dark web mob and all the sense-making crew and all these ones and, and people looking basically for a way to, um, uh, make Western civilization work, <laughs> basically. <laughs> like, hey, what what could this look like if it worked? And um, doing some really really good thinking, and um, you know, amazing amazing stuff. You know, to figure out how it all worked. And you know, within this, it, there's a general agreement right across the board that you uh, you know that power has to be distributed. You know that um, permanent sort of hierarchies are corruptible and no good. You know, so you you have to have you know a distributed uh, economic system, distributed power dynamics. You have to everything in a complex system has to be distributed uh, evenly throughout the system. And but everybody's still stuck in this uh, you know violence is bad sort of paradigm and peace is good kind of thing. Um, and I guess my argument is that violence itself is a is a part of the system, whether you like it or not, and needs to be distributed throughout it. When it is distributed throughout a system like a, a human community or an ecosystem or anything else, it does very little damage. Mm. You know, you, you don't you don't get a lot of uh, casualties, and you know you certainly don't get collateral damage. And, and things like this but when when uh violence is concentrated into the you know a, a few privileged groups or you know a handful of people you know or people who do it as a profession it's um you know that that's that's when it's no good and and this this goes along gender lines as well and so sort of for this i've, I've offered a lot of uh um our australian aboriginal um you know, basic uh, original frameworks of, of how all these uh, violence dynamics work. And, um, yeah, I talk a fair bit about um, how that's still working in the places where it's still working, which it's not It's not working like that everywhere, you know. There's a lot of really bad fallout and, um, uh, you know, asymmetrical violence that happens in our communities now um, but you can still see uh, all the original uh, protocols and the ritualization of the violence and 
and a lot of the rule govern stuff around that. So would, would, would you say that that sort of fits into the notion of sort of honor societies, honor and honor shame societies versus kind of dignity societies like the dignities would be the appeal to the structures and the due process and authorities and honor on honor shame or you know eye for an eye or if you dishonored me it's on me to right the wrong yeah i've, I've sort of tried to look in into that but there's a uh, it, it doesn't really fit with our idea of shame like i know there's this sort of shame versus guilt sort of thing um <laughs> sort of that happens so in your uh, weird, like Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic uh, societies, um, you know, guilt is something that that people are encouraged to do, you know, in, individually, you know, to sort of keep punishing themselves and self-regulate. And I guess that makes people good neoliberal subjects as well. It sort of just transfers <laughs> across nicely, um, you know, to be self-monitoring, self, uh, self-managing, self-regulating. Um, but outside of the weirder and prior to, I guess, uh, Martin Luther banging his note up on the door, um, you know, most of those, those communities, uh, were the same as everyone else in the world and, and you didn't have the guilt. So you had shame and shame was something that you did as a collective, you know, um, it, shame is something that comes from the group. And, yeah. Like oh, the, the so, transgression of, of shared norms and values. Yeah, and we have that same thing, but it's a so in Aboriginal English, it's different. The, the word's there, but it means something different. I mean, it's there. It's a it's a it's something that prevents you from transgressing, and then it's a it's a kind of punishment that happens when you have transgressed, and it's really hard to to convey the meaning of that. So you know, we we'll say like uh, how we use it would be like, oh, that's shame. That's shame, or I'm shame. I am shame in transit. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I'm shame. Uh, or that's shame. Yeah. So I'm shame is like, it's a state that, that you're in and it's weird. It's somewhere in between guilt and, and shame. I mean, cause I guess, um, you know, uh, everything is everything in, in our society, um, indigenous society in Australia is, it's all on this sort of constant tension and balance between, uh, you know, your autonomy and your relatedness, you know, because on the one hand, you're asserting yourself as an individual, but on the other hand, you're, you're bound with all in, within all of these obligations. Um, so your identity isn't just subsumed into the collective. And I guess that's the same way that we experience shame. It's like as something that's not quite guilt and not quite shame in the Western sense either, you know, um, and it just prevents you from transgressing. So, for example, and it, it goes through everything. So in our knowledge transmission, so in our pedagogies, for example, you know, you observe, we don't have trial and error. <laughs> so in our methods of inquiry as well, uh, trial and error is not, that's not on. You don't like, you don't learn from mistakes uh, in our cultures. You, um, you, you're not supposed to make mistakes. Uh, you're supposed to observe and, um, and joining for small parts of an activity until you know it. And when you know it, and you can definitely do it for the first time without, you know, and you can do it perfectly, that's when you're allowed to do it. So you're not allowed to know something until you know it perfectly. 
That, that reminds me of like of, of like traditions in Ghana, like like drum traditions. Like you, you you're not given a djembe until you've sort of apprenticed for three years, and you can do all you can sing all the rhythms and you can tap all the rhythms before you're actually given an instrument to make a sound on. You know, that's it. That's it. You you can't just be banging away on a drum like <laughs> you know for a thousand hours until you get it right. You know, because that's a thousand hours of shame. <laughs> like you couldn't do that that's shame <laughs> you know um yes so to trial and try and fail on something it's shame i mean technically you could take off on your own and just do it in secret but that's not something we're allowed to do to do either so in our community really is, is that seen as like you coaching the yeah. teaching no you you can't be on your own anybody who walks off on their own anywhere it's like um Everyone in the everyone in town will know about it. It's like, hey, he's walking on his own. Like, what's he up to? Hmm. And like, uh, so suspicion will fall on you immediately that you're up to no a good. You're a like shady uh, loner. Yeah, you're looking to do something terrible to somebody, or you know, uh, uh, people will accuse you of sorcery or something like that. You know, you, you can't be alone. So you can't be alone. You can't make mistakes. <laughs> It's, mm -hmm. it's funny. It's quite strict while at the same time, it's, it's very, it's very free because at the same time, you know, nobody boss blummy, no, nobody, nobody can boss anyone else. You can't, you can't, you can't interrogate people. You can't force people to do anything. Everybody has complete autonomy, but <laughs> that's within a network of obligations and relations and mechanisms like shame that completely mm. regulate your behavior at the same time. Well, and, and, and help me tease apart because I think in, in reading your book, it, it definitely doesn't sound like the, you're not allowed to make mistakes is the same as Calvinist Protestant work ethic perfectionism. So yeah. help unpack that. Because I, I think I'm tracking what you're saying, but 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 I would imagine that maybe a listener might be like, "Wait a tick, are those the same?" Yeah. Well, the, I mean, work ethics are completely different things. So you know, you, you don't just practice. It's not practice makes perfect. It's um, it's ob observation and relationship makes perfect. And and I guess people call it uh, a kind of empathy where you're observing somebody, and you're in such close relation with them that you're inhabiting their practice while you're observing them as a master doing something and then eventually you can just do it and that's when you have the knowledge <laughs> you know what i mean mm -hmm. and you're not supposed to even attempt it before then mm -hmm. yeah um it's weird i guess when i when i'm trying to talk to somebody about it then i i, I don't know because i just you know am that and be that and then when you when you try to uh, abstract it and translate that, I guess it just sounds weird. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not done. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm because, and, I, and I've had my head handed to me in the last couple of years attempting to say, hey, I think we actually, like, I think we've got a bunch of shameless behavior going on right now in society, you know, and, and that kind of, um, you know, Joe McCarthy, you know, famous, the, the, the horrible Senator of McCarthyism in the fifties, right? I mean, yeah. the thing that undid him was finally someone stood up in Congress and said, Senator McCarthy, have you no shame, sir? 
Mm. Right. And, 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 you know, you see it on Instagram, you see it on digital self-promotional marketers, you see all that you, you're like, are you fucking kidding me? Like you should yeah. be embarrassed and you're not. And, and, you know, I think Brene Brown has, she's coined the language and I think it's the exact opposite of what we're discussing. I think she talks about shame being a, a bad thing, not a social good. Um, yeah. My, my, some, I mean, I, and I've gone back to the dictionary because people said, you've got it backwards. And I was like, oh shit, did I really? And I went back and looked and the, the, the actual dictionary definitions are completely useless. They're just ambiguous. But yep. to me, at least guilt is more individual and it's often a sense of I am not worthy. And that might not be a healthy thing, but shame yep. I've transgressed my community's norms and it's on me to atone is actually something that feels like a critical cultural nutrient. Does that That's track for you? <laughs> It really does. And the whole time I'm just thinking about uh, uh, Trump over the last few years because we've all done the workshop, you know, and basically he he taught the world. So he's the most watched, most famous person on the planet, that guy. And everybody's watched him and everyone's That's done the horrifying. workshop. So everybody knows that uh, if you do something shameful, then um, – you can dodge all that. You can dodge the bad feelings that you have internally, but you can also dodge the, um, you know, the relational fallout from that. You know, um, all you have to do is, is if you do something shameful, then very quickly do 10 other shameful things and throw them all out at once. And then as people start try, to go, try and pin any of these on me, I'm just going to keep yeah. moving. <clears throat> oh yeah. And, and how you keep moving is as each one is pinned on you, you um <laughs> you do that do that kind of jujitsu of of saying uh no i didn't do that you did that no matter how insane that is <laughs> mm -hmm. fake news you you're that. fake news yeah. and then and then you <laughs> flick around you're victimizing me you're bullying me i i this isn't a safe space i i don't feel safe you're <laughs> you know so you can dodge anything now um and then if they keep uh if they keep pressing, then you just do 10 more shameful things and give them a bigger list to work through. Yeah. People just give up, I guess. So I think that's yeah. part of the shamelessness. But this is this comes this all comes back to violence as well. You know, because usually the shameful acts that uh that people are being shamed over or are feeling shame for, you know, usually these are acts of um acts of non-righteous violence non-righteous okay yeah not uh that's from that western sort of way of looking at things not righteous but i mean i guess from our way we think of it as sort of unregulated or outside of protocol you know uh, because we have protocols for violence all violence has to be witnessed by many people you know it has to be public it has to be transparent and there are rules you know you even just simple rules of combat, you can't pull anybody's hair. Um, you can't hit anybody or continue the fight when they're on the ground. So it's up, upright striking. Upright striking. And, um, you know, traditionally often this would be done with weapons. And, um, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it's evenly distributed, you know, across all the groups of people. So uh, with regard to age, uh, gender, anything else you can think of, any other dimension of social space, you, you know, the violence is distributed right through, you know, so kids will be doing this. Um, you know, everybody has the capacity 
for for violence and everybody has has um has decent skills of violence you know um at least and i guess there's that western idea of honor or uh, i don't know it sort of comes down to this uh that roman idea i guess of dignitas you know um i guess it's it's kind of similar to that but not quite because it's not the, we have a real fluid self other boundary so all the people that you're connected to and related to you know you are you're part of that so you know if if you're doing the right thing and you're doing something or you're doing something exceptional that that reflects on everybody that's everybody's pride you know and if you're shame then that's everybody's shame too you know um but the other thing is it's you know you've always got so many cousins and every everything else around so you know if you are uh uh disabled or you just don't have that same facility with violence then there's always you always have proxies mm. and you always have people ready to jump in you know <laughs> for you um you know a bit like uh game of thrones with the with the little fellow on there when he had to fight to the death and he, <laughs> and he had a champion Right. And he got to have Bron to be his champion. I guess we're all each other's champions all the time. Um, so yeah, you just you're not allowed to break any of the protocols. Um, and if you do, then the crowd will regulate you. And the mm -hmm. idea of any violence occurring behind closed doors is just that's just anathema, you know. That's not to say that isn't happening now because there's a lot of disruption to the the law, uh, traditional law. But um yeah and as i was saying it's distributed so um women i mean if you look up uh you know indigenous youtube fight videos in australia you'll see that um the majority of the fights are women and and, and is that actually that's like that's a category like you could punch that into youtube and you'd get heads yeah yeah I, i've written a paper on it um yeah we did a whole uh research project on that um but it, it was funny because it was um, it was non-indigenous researchers who were who were looking into these YouTube fights on behalf of a community uh, that remains unnamed uh, because they wanted to find out more about that and how much um, YouTube was exacerbating the problems and interfering with the sort of ritual dynamics of that and all that kind of thing. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so we we looked looked into that quite deeply. Um, yeah, it's funny. Um, but so immediately after that, though, you know, because that was a non-indigenous led project, and I was kind of the the token black fellow on the <laughs> on the research team there. There were a lot of other things I wanted to look at, and um, I don't know. So I I I put a an indigenous team together, and then we did our own one. But we were looking at um, uh, settler street fight videos on YouTube. So we. <laughs> So we took those uh, rules, um, like our protocols of combat and violence, and and we sort of uh, we look we looked at that as the rubric by which we judge all the uh, settler uh, fight videos. And and, and what did you, so, so, okay, so you, you said we'll put you under the magnifying glass, but we'll use the yeah. same rubrics that you were scrutinizing. Yeah, it was us. a cheeky bit of reverse anthropology. It's um mm -hmm. it's it's been like nearly two years. We've been doing it. I mean, you know, the actual we only looked we looked at a hundred a hundred YouTube videos. Um 
of street fights from uh, colonies, uh, right. from settle settlements. You know, um, you know, sort of street fights, and we were looking for the um, to see, you know, where our indigenous protocols, how how often there was a rule violation in those. And hmm. we were actually we were actually quite surprised to see that the the pattern was there. As as far as there was some normative, yeah, code, there was even a, it seems like there was a human pattern off there. Friday and, night, um, and there were a lot of rule violations, like you know things like so, um, um, you know, collateral damage is just is just not a thing. You, you're not allowed to have that in our way. So you can't, you know, knock somebody into the crowd and people get knocked over or something like that. And you know, uh, uh, there are there are several uh, several protocols like that. And we evaluated all these things, and we were quite surprised to see that there was a fair bit of um, a fair bit of enforcement of of those protocols in uh, what are the, the so the settlements we looked at. We looked at um, uh, United States, of course, Canada, um, New Zealand, uh, Taiwan and uh israel i think that was it yeah so we we were looking at all those and um and we saw that 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 pattern was there of people trying to regulate the violence but the people who were regulating the violence were women Hmm. we we could we could find almost no uh street fights that were that involved women as combatants outside of aboriginal communities yeah outside of aboriginal communities so in the settler settler street fight videos you know, women were not combatants, and but the, they you could tell they were itching to join in <laughs> in all these ones. So, um, but the the role that that the women were playing was in trying to regulate um, the fights. Uh, did, you, did you did try you look to, at to bring those protocols into the fights and um, yeah, uh, making sure things didn't get too dirty or anything like that? Um, did you at all? Did that, you look at all at urban African American women? Uh, yeah, well, we didn't, subculture. we weren't going on. So, you know, we went quite deeply into this and, and sort of just uh, melanin content in your skin and the, um, and, and the fact of being an involuntary settler, you know, we decided, well, these are still fet- settlers. Um, yeah, so we did, uh, basically, we, um, we, we weren't just going, oh, white people, we were going settlers you know so of course you know so there were uh in the fight videos in australia there was you know uh, sometimes arabs sometimes greeks sometimes you know <laughs> uh, all different kinds of people but they're settlers you know so yeah we we basically looked at everything and and uh, looked at, looked um, at every, what, what, every, what surprised and, you well the involuntary settlers um the involuntary settlers had more rule governed violence and, and when yeah. you say involuntary settlers, would that be sort of Indians into Australia, anybody who was perhaps a labor force or something else yeah. that wasn't just so dominant? People who are, people who are either, um, uh, you know, refugees who really didn't want to leave home or, uh, you know, people like so African-Americans who kind of didn't really have a choice as to whether or not they'd be brought to America. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, involuntary colonists. Um, yeah, they they scored higher on the on the rule governed uh, violence. They were more likely to follow rules, uh, pause and wait for someone to get up. You know, uh, protect onlookers. You know, from collateral damage, etc., um, etc. Et um, 
Yeah, and so for example, like you know, um, so in our way, there's no kicking or or striking someone on the ground. You know, um, <laughs> with your your voluntary settlers, there was a lot of kicking people on the ground, a lot of like stomping on people's heads while they were unconscious on the ground and, and stuff like that. But the um, reaction of the crowd to that was seldom positive. You know, the reaction of the crowd to that was to try and regulate and, and prevent that behavior. You know, so I, we kind of saw this human pattern come through that a lot of the indigenous protocols for violence, um, you know, was trying, struggling to assert itself in these settler videos. You know, it was full on. And did you guys infer or or directly link what you perceived as the lack of checks and balances in settler violence, particularly, I forget your terminology, the elective colonialist mm. settler violence with intergenerational impunity of externalized violence? Like the fact that because yeah. by, by nature of being the dominant hierarchy, you're used well, to pulling cheap shots and getting away with it. Well, that was our null hypothesis. Like, we assumed that's what we'd find, and it wasn't. Okay. You know? So we found we found quite a bit of governance happening in street fights, in settler street fights. Quite a bit. Not as I mean, not even half what you see in our communities. Um, even even where we're really dysfunctional, it's there's still, you know, isn't as much um, uh, governance around the violence. <laughs> um, yeah, so so we found that, and it was. But we also found the. Um, it, it was quite. It was fairly dysfunctional. But what we found was was people trying to reassert those things, trying to reass, reassert the protocols of um, of sort of relatively safe and fair violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's obviously something that humans need, and football's not enough. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. spectator sports is not enough. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, and, and you could see that they were just trying to enact something that's just patterned with them as human, within them as human beings. Um, what, we saw, what, what we saw as the biggest problem, though, was the gendered nature of the violence, which was not where we were expecting the study to go. But um, the exclusion of women, like, oh, universally, like from Taiwan to Israel to Australia, the exclusion of women from the violence, the active exclusion of women from the violence was, um, that was the worst part. It was amazing. Uh, what we did see uh, a lot of was this kind of chivalry of no matter how out of control the men were, they were very, very careful not to bump into a woman or, you know, if a woman was standing in between, they wouldn't push her out of the way. Um, yeah, we found this, like this amazing sort of chivalry. Everything we found in there was unexpected. And um, hmm. yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, because, you know, at, at a glance, you'd think, oh, the violence is wheels off the absence of governors and regulation, but you're actually finding yeah. that, that, that it's actually subtly and sometimes probably explicitly like highly regulated. There's all sorts yeah. of norms and customs that go with yeah. violence, even though it feels like it's an ungovernable situation. Yeah. And here's where I get canceled um, in a lot of places uh, on a regular basis is that that I believe that excluding women um, uh, from the agency of violence, you know, mm-hmm. from violence as agents, um, that, that, that that's the most horrendously violent act. Gender imbalance, I believe, is what causes, you know, you know pretty much everything. Um, 
uh, this idea that women are soft and nurturing and the and sort of weak and don't have that in them you know and that um they're these sort of cowering soft things and that they need to be protected so the chivalry that we saw was lovely but at the same time it was um you know profoundly disempowering for the women and you could see the frustration because they wanted to get in there they wanted to punch someone in the face they were trying to punch someone in the face and nobody would let them <laughs> there was too much chivalry going on you know and I believe I that's, that's the most horrendous act of violence towards 50% of the population, you know. Yeah, that, that, that oh, was one of the more memorable passages in your book, was just you describing the absolute glory yeah. of two indigenous women just squaring off and yeah. just slugging it. Yeah. And so, I mean, you're looking at someone who's half your size and you're watching them fight and thinking, I, I, I couldn't beat her. She would flog the hell out of me. You know what I mean? It's it's not uh, you know everybody always cites these biological differences. You know that oh man, so men are obviously supposed to fight because we're bigger. But um, you know, I guess any martial artist you talk to will will tell you it's fairly irrelevant the the size of the person that's fighting. Um, you know, <laughs> it's about how they can move and, mm. and what they can do with it. And um, yeah. So, like, um, you know, in, in my mother, um, like women traditionally would fight each other uh, with two sticks. They'd have a stick in each hand. Mm. And sort of uh, legs really wide apart and, and sort of swaying, doing this swaying motion. And then all the movement would come out of that swaying. It was like this amazing martial art that's gone. I mean, it's gone. It was like, you know, <laughs> the first thing in every... Uh, in every mission, like when the missionaries came in, um, but but also the you know the settlements, the police, the the military, everything else. Uh, the first thing banned was, um, well, actually, the first thing banned was like homosexuality and transgenderism. <laughs> the second thing that was banned was um, martial arts, and then the language. <laughs> you know, these are these are the <laughs> these are these are the things. Um, and basically, you can see that that's the basic building blocks of, you know, how you civilize, how you domesticate uh, a human being. As first, you have to let them know what they're, you know, here's the, the narrow range of gender roles uh, that you have to fulfill. And these are the two kinds of people you can be. And here's how they have to relate to each other. Um, it's a really narrow range of options. And... Um, yeah, you can't you can't have martial arts. You can't have violence because violence is bad. Violence is something that authority does to you. It's not something that you do. <laughs> you know, there's half a dozen branches in this in in what you've laid out so far that I'm sort of you know fascinated to pursue. Um, one of which is you you alluded a couple of times, and this this actually some leads to a bigger point from when I first read Santor. Um, that I wanted to ask you about, but you, you, you know, you alluded to, Hey, here is effectively some version of indigenous continuity as far as public mm. violence. You said things have been shifting lately. There are some less functional privatizations yeah. of violence, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it, and it made me think of like the Navajo reservation here in the States, which has 
an exceptionally high murder rate, but one of the sort of really grim statistics is, you know, I think over half are death by bludgeoning. It's it's beaten mm. to death with with blunt instruments. Yeah. And and so, you know, it's impossible for any of us to rewind the clock back to pre-settlement, pre pre pre-colonization, right? Yeah. And so everybody is in the midst of mishmash living traditions. Mm. What what's your sense as both a member of a community, but also a scholar observing it. I mean, we're, we're not in a steady state. There, there's, there's not, yeah. a, there's not idyllic original condition to get back to. And we're all just dealing with what we've got. Um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? The intersection <sighs> well, of conquest, just, removal, reservation, boarding schools, indoctrination. It's, it's, not a line. it's not a line like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, all these abuses and disruptions, they're not something that just happened in the past. Um, you know, colonization is an act of, as a, as a violent act is still happening right now and arguably it's happening worse than ever you know so um you know on on those navajo reservations you know there are lots of uh women and girls going missing all the time um and lots of uh women and girls being raped all the time and not by their own community that's happening from outside the community you know there's also a lot of pressure happening so the colony will will introduce institutions that are ostensibly there to help, you know, um, but they're not helping. You know, they're actually there to regulate. Um, so, you know, uh, so a welfare kind of thing will be set up. Um, and then it's there to sort of help people manage their lives and budget and all that sort of thing. But, you know, you have to check in with them two or three times a week or you lose your payment and you can't eat. So that therefore forces you to live a sedentary life in a village uh, with several clans who normally would be spread out or several even different tribes who normally would not be crammed together in one place. And so you're all there and nobody really can go very far out into the land uh, to do the things that you have to do. Um, nobody can move around because you have to stay around this hub or you lose what you need to eat. Uh, this happens uh, worse and worse the closer you get to a mine. Um, the racism gets worse. Everything gets worse. Uh, but the violence particularly gets worse, the uh, state violence. You know, so we've had in the north of Australia um, over the last decade, we've had uh, what was called the intervention. So that was actually sending the military in uh, to, to indigenous communities. They basically did QAnon. Um, I, I, th I think QAnon just borrowed the blueprint from there. They, you know, they basically they um they did this whole thing it, like we were the Clintons, Aboriginal people were the Clintons, you know we were we were uh, trafficking children, uh, you know pedophile networks, all this sort of stuff. So they they built up this moral panic around Aboriginal pedophilia and um, child abuse, and wow. sent the military sent the military into um, our communities um, to intervene to save the children. And, um, but they didn't actually do anything for children. What they did was, for example, so the first thing they did was forced all the communities that had one native title, uh, to sign their land over, um, as 99 year leases for mining, you know, because they had to, uh, you know, the Australian economy wasn't doing too great. So they had to increase the amount of oil production. Um, so, you know, you see things like that. So Australia got through the GFC uh, pretty well because they exponentially increased oil production. Um, wow. Yeah. 
which which involved absolutely destroying Aboriginal communities because that's where the ore is, you know. Um, so I don't know if you um, people wouldn't have heard of the stolen generations there, but that's basically you know the practice of removing Aboriginal children from families um, and placing them with um, with settler families, or um, more often actually just placing in, in big wards, dormitories, you know, big state facilities like that, yeah. and those kids being raised there, and then you know being trained to be criminals basically, and then let loose on the world. Um, so that that's something that's been happening for you know, that's something that's been seen to be seen as something that happened in the past. It comes back to this idea that colonization is not something that happened before, because basically that was something. Uh, uh, everybody in Australia was denying ever happened, and then finally they admitted it happened, and the prime minister um, apologised for it. He did the apology, you know, for the stolen generations, and it was a really big moment. And so Australia closed the book on that then, and um, you know, so now apparently we're all reconciled because they apologised for, you know, that past colonisation, you know, that that uh, that theft of children. But the fact is that more children right now, today, more children uh, in, um, are removed from Aboriginal families than at any other point in Australian history. So right now yeah. we're having... Right now. Yeah, right now, more children are being removed than at any other point in Australia's history. It's Under what colonization. Sort of rationalization or, or program? What's happening? Uh I, I don't think it's called a program. There are lots of programs that are like little children are sacred and protect the children and don't remove the children. These are all the programs. But the reality is that that um, more than ever are being removed. And that's just, uh, you know, just generally children's services. Um, and uh, wasn't, wasn't there things. a film that kind of went fairly big, like it was Rabbit Proof Fence or something along those lines? Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's everybody's images of the stolen generations, that it's like, you know, just evil British police kind of thing, um, doing something to people a long time ago. Um, but it wasn't a long time ago. That stuff wasn't that long ago, but it's not a long time ago because it's still happening now. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's um, colonization is a process. Um, and I guess in, in the study I was talking about before, um, some of the places we started to look at, like, for example, Brazil. We looked at fight videos in Brazil and we saw a completely different pattern. We saw the same kind of uh, street violence and, and uh, regulated violence, but more importantly, we saw the same, you know, equal gender participation in street violence in Brazil, in the Brazil fight videos that we have in indigenous communities. And we were going, oh, so what's different here? They, you know, that's a colony. And then we sort of looked at it and went, oh, no, they decolonized. The settlers left, <laughs> so you know somewhere like Brazil is you know um, yeah it, it it sort of it has a different pattern uh, patterning for violence. Arguably, you know they didn't leave. It's just the the power left. The power just was no longer held by a foreign state. You know the colonial power, but uh, not by a state, but but by um, a, a foreign market instead. And business interests. So, I mean, you find that in most places that claim to be decolonized, it's just there isn't a foreign administration anymore. There's, um, you know, but there are corporations that pretty much call the shots. And, um, 
you know, superpowers elsewhere that will ensure that the right government is in place and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm getting off track. Well, I mean, you know, this is, we're just sort of pulling on the ball of string. Um, this is a mass, I mean, you know, part of the reason I appreciate, um, listening to you and, and, and talking to you is just, you, you just come in orthogonally to pretty much any contemporary topic and you're, but you're, it's not just, Hey, I'm a contrarian. I like to think nifty thoughts, you know, it's based on generations of radically different perspectives on being humans on this earth. Um, and th there's, there's several things. I mean, we've, we've got this notion of sort of honor shame cultures, right. Which we've been exploring and the role of socially mediated healthy shame. Um, and it occurs to me based on your study, you know, that there's something along the lines of either we choose to do this ourselves, which is arguably the only ethical thing, or we create externalities of our shame. Like if we are going to be shameless, right? Somebody else has to hold the bag. I mean, even yeah. if you think of sort of pro-life evangelical Christians in the United States, you know, you're basically, you know, who, who get very much into the moral stance of we're protecting unborn lives, mm. but it's fundamentally our unborn lives. If you think of like the city states of Sparta and Athens or, you know, or, or any other situation, if you don't engage in birth control, right, up to and including infanticide, right, you are basically saying we refuse to kill our children, so we will have to go and kill yours, right, yeah. through population expansion, right? And, and they may it. have grown up, they may That's be holding it. guns or swords, right? And, and, and in fact, a it's, friend of ours- It's all was, externalities. A anything good that you try and do on, on, these big on, the, on these scales of great nations and global markets anything good that you try and do even in your activism or anything else they're producing externalities uh what i refer to in sand talk as um, um outsourcing your entropy <laughs> yes that, i particularly said that about violence that if you if you're living in peace that means you're outsourcing your violence somewhere else you're just outsourcing that entropy to someone someone else well and and, and the united states right and it's from 2000 you know, from 2001 until now, the sort of 20 years of Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, everywhere else, we've outsourced it twice over. Not only did we yeah. export our conflict overseas, but then we literally privatized the war effort. So we didn't even have the accountability of a Vietnam era draft, right? I mean, I think the ratio of private military contractors to, in, to actually service people was yeah. four to one. So, so we literally bled the coffers via a bunch of DC, you know, beltway bandits like Blackwater and others having the government and the taxpayers pay to train soldiers and technicians and anybody else, have them leave the military, then hire them and then charge the government quadruple for yep. the services again. And because there was never a pressure on civilians to say, oh, my number came up. Yep. I have to go and risk my life. Do I sign off on this? Is this a, is this a just war? We, you know, yep. we, we outsourced it twice over there's more private uh soldiers than bloody uh, public ones in the world right now it's 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 horrific so you got uh you know you got joe biden like you know uh, getting lots of standing ovations for you know ending wars and pulling out of the occupation of countries various countries at the moment um 
they're still leaving the the private the like the, the mercenaries basically they're still leaving the mercenaries there um and also all of these withdrawals like the, they withdraw to the border you know just over the border in the next country and they sit up there and then they just cross the border whenever they want to go in and do an incursion and they still bomb the shit out of the place <laughs> you know what i mean but they say oh look we're withdrawing all the troops we're ending the war we're ending the military occupation uh, occupation of this country that they, they do it 10 times worse and that's pretty much i don't know most of the things i see most of the activism i see is basically just sanitizing spaces uh to make them feel more peaceful uh even uh to make them feel more equal so you look at everything around you know equality and all this sort of thing it's about making uh sanitized spaces that seem more diverse that seem more equal you know that have good feels to them but usually that inequity is being um outsourced to somewhere else you know um Basically, you can't have a growth-based economy without inequality. It's not possible to have economic growth and equality. You, you can't have both. You're not allowed. You, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's a law of economics. Yeah. You know, it, with growth-based economy, you know, your demand needs to exceed supply. And so think it through. Like, yeah, there has to be more demand than supply. There has to be more people missing out on shit than there are people get, is than there is people getting shit. In order to do to have that, you need to have a caste system. In order to have a caste system, you need to have identified outsider groups, and those things need to be policed um, uh, by the groups that that have more privilege, uh, and they have to be policed by you know, police, military, all these things as well. I mean, it, you just have to have that, or you can't have economic growth. So all these people who are sort of being activists from this liberal sort of stance, you know. They need to rethink things. They need to sit down and think, okay, so how do we change the economic system so that um, we're not dependent on growth? How can we make sure that everything doesn't collapse if we you know, develop a degrowth economy? Because that's where you need to start. Because otherwise you're in the shower trying to dry yourself from the feet up. You haven't dried your hair yet. You know, those feet are still keep going to keep getting wet. And you can bloody give someone a nice new towel and say, oh, look, dry feet, but no. It's not going to happen. I mean, it makes me think a very, a very visceral uh, example was uh, a friend was um, just had just come out of twenty years in the rainforest down in the Amazon. Yeah, and you know, and, and had mentioned that a lot of the folks in Colombia, Brazil, et cetera, had been talking. You know, actually, maybe not dissimilar to your in your experience um, when you said the sort of QAnon of Australia. There, there was a sense of like, oh. The Yanomami, they they are they are savages. They they kill their own children, and he was describing, um, actually, you know, interviewing a mother, and she's like, "Look, if I have three children, and our enemies come in, or or the rubber barons, or the timber guys, and mm. any any threat to us, I can't carry all three of my kids, which means all four of us die." If I accidentally have a, an additional child beyond two, we do actually as lovingly and compassionately as possible end their life so that I can save yep. my other two children's life. And, and so, you know, you, you, it's an entirely different ethic of concern. Well, see, you know? and I hear that story. I hear that story and I see a woman who belongs to a culture that's been so radically disrupted that um, 
you know, her women's business of, um, of regulating her fertility is, is, is no longer um, available to her. I see a disrupted culture. If I see a culture where a woman uh, can't regulate her fertility, you know, in a, you know, um, thousands year old tradition, you know, using the medicine plants and using the, you know, all of the techniques that women use and have used forever to do that very effectively. Um, then yeah, I just see a culture that's been disrupted. Mm. It's just, well, so then- I mean, we, we have, so, you know, um, you know, so, you know, my people have, um, have, have medicine plants that are for, um, for regulating fertility that are, are birth control. And even right down, I'm 3,000 kilometers away from there now at the bottom of Australia. And this mob here, they, they uh, always use kangaroo apple um, as a contraceptive thing called kangaroo apple. And, you know, it definitely works because there's kangaroo apple plantations all over the world that they use to make birth control pills. Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah. Wow. And that's, that's what a lot of the birth control pills have been made out of since the birth control pill has, started, has begun. I mean, you know, compounds have been synthesized and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, basically this, this, this has all, always begun in indigenous medicine and, and traditional knowledge. And I just mean from the indigenous people, but from, you know, the, the humans everywhere. So, you know, the places that you've come from, you know, so even, you know, in Europe and everywhere else, it, it wasn't very long ago that everybody knew this stuff there as well. But just this, this, the frustration of hearing people talking about progress and saying, oh, women for the first time in human history, the first time in a million years, women are finally freed, you know, um, with the birth control pill. <laughs> it's just, it's just, I just find it staggering, you know, oh, so now women have been just in the last few decades for the first time in a million years, women are finally able to be equal, you know, because they, they can regulate their fertility. And it's just bullshit. It's just absolute bullshit. It's a, it's a, it's a lie. Mm. The, the whole thing is a lie. Um, you know, this myth of progress. We, women have been, uh, the process of domestication of women, um, you know, over the last few centuries in, in these civilizations has just been absolutely horrendous. You know, and, and part of that has been denying them access um, you know, uh, to the affordances of violence as an agent. You know, w- women are confined, women are limited, women are confined by their clothing, by the spaces they're supposed to inhabit, you know, so that they become soft and they diminish and they, 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 they become weak. And I, I guess this is where I get cancelled, you know. Um, in, um, in what, in what direction quite, quite a bit do you Because, oh, well, it's like, oh, he's suggesting that it's, it's women's own fault that that um, you know, like violence against women is is their own fault because they they they're not learning martial arts or something. And I'm like, no, that's obviously not what I'm saying. Um, but I guess people are really trying to escape from having to um, to to really look at this and go, oh, hang on a second, there there is this domestication process going on, um, mm. and that has been going on for a long time, and. Pretty much most of the stories, the when we are caveman stories, that is the foundation of every discipline, is um, is a fabrication, is pseudoscience, and perhaps things weren't so terrible. Mm. 
you know, perhaps, you know, our, our past weren't, you know, lives of brutish misery, etc. And um, there's some stuff that we can learn from that if we actually look at it properly. Well, so so speaking of that, I was just reading um, this fellow, David Reich. He's at Harvard. He's a geneticist. And, yeah. I, and I forget his book. It's a very friendly title. It's something like How We Got to Now or, or something along those lines or, or Where We Came From, something along. And, and yeah. it's, it's he, his lab has been responsible for a ton of the Neanderthal and, and Homo sapien stuff, migrations of yeah. Europe, but also into the Western Hemisphere. And you probably already know this one, but it, I did not. And it blew my mind was he said... He was, they were tracking North American, South American migrations over Beringia. A number of them actually happened earlier, you know, while it was all still iced up. But he said there's, there's a random migratory strain. And the only place it still exists is in the depths of the Amazon. And it's 7% of the genetic material. So, you know, all those papers came out like, hey, you know, you might be 2 to 5% Neanderthal, you know, for, for yeah. European ancestry. The 7% is actually Andaman, Sea, New Guinea, and Australia genetics yeah. in the amazon yep so so now i'm going to pop that so hey blew my mind um isn't you know whoa how what like how on earth do we even begin to map what that was because it wasn't even like polynesian islanders you could be like oh the sailors that made it to hawaii went a little kept on trucking you know it, aboriginal australian yeah new guinea well um the the oldest the oldest depiction of an ocean going vessel um, is here. It's in it's in Western Australia, on the planet. Hmm. Yeah, that's worth. So what does it look up. like? I got a what, I got what? a good friend. Oh, so it's a so it's a very it appears to be a really large dugout canoe. Um, but you couldn't call it a canoe. It's it's obviously a boat. You're looking at the size of the figures, the amount of people that are in it, um, the big prow that's obviously for getting through waves, um, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, there are also in that uh, in those cave paintings there are pictures of deer, which aren't native to Australia, of course. Yeah. So, um, look, it, it's I don't know. This is something that's in our stories. Is that um, look, not a lot of people know about the trade, uh, the trade that was ended by the British uh, between Australia and Asia, uh, that was going strong uh, before the British arrived. Hmm. So we'd had a, a long, long-standing trade uh, happening, going up into uh, Indonesia and and through Asia there, um, and you know, going back and forth. Uh, there's lots of Aboriginal people who've gone up there and married in um, over the years, and vice versa down here. There's there's Macassan uh, people who've married in uh, traditionally, you know, into Aboriginal Australia. Um, that, that isn't talked about very often, and also the trade. Uh, with New Guinea, um, but beyond as well. Um, mm. I, I do have a, a friend who's working on this right now, but it's a very, it's a highly contested area and he pretty much has to fight his way through it the whole time because uh, it doesn't really fit with everybody's picture of what, you know, Indigenous Australia, Indigenous Australia is and was. Uh, but, yeah, his, uh, his family has, has a story um, a story of visiting Hawaii hmm. and, you know, um, and native Hawaiian words. And the Hawaiians also have the same story of being visited by us. Um, uh, we were the ones that, uh, 
interestingly enough, what, what we what we passed on to them, what we traded to them, was was the uh, rule governed violence uh, that that you and I were talking about earlier. <laughs> wow, that was that was what we traded uh, to uh, Polynesians. Yeah, I mean, to me, to me, it's just our our past collectively is far more far less certain and far more interesting than any of the identity politics or you know or or even academic models yeah. would would suggest so That's so it. so now talk to me and, and, and as like i said feel free to shoot this to ribbons but um my sense was probably i mean other than science and technology in its healthy expressions with tons of collateral damage and tons of overshoots but other than that um, I would argue that the most valuable evolution or innovation or whatever we want to call it, we don't even need to presume it's never been done before, but let's just say it's a thing, which was that notion, French Enlightenment, of sort of extension of rights and and um, privilege to everyone, regardless of race, color, or creed, right? Inalienable rights of the individual. Now, shitty, shitty execution total bill of goods emerged at the same time as colonial market-based capitalism, militarization, you know, hegemonic Christianity, you name it, uh, it wrapped in a pile of steaming poo, but potentially a beautiful thing that could lead us to a, go a global, a shared global humanity, right? Um, not delivered on even close, you know, used as a stalking horse for all sorts of injustices and 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 dominator extractive shit. But on the other hand, would you say, yes, that is a good idea and worthwhile? Or would you take a, a sort of a, a healthy tribalist, a bioregional tribalism of like, stop fucking trying to square the circle that creates hot because i mean i remember in your book you're like hey stop Neither trying to fix things. things solve things figure things yeah. out what, what would how would you respond but just i mean just get your baseline data right first get the story right is is what i what i'd say and then go from there because we are where we are but uh yeah look it's just and here's where people get cranky bros <laughs> here's where people get a bit upset and um and they, they get a bit incandescent. They can't really express themselves. But it is it is so disingenuous. Um, it's so disingenuous of civilizations um, to like basically, um, you know, plant themselves on top of a system that's already doing that. That's already doing the, you know, uh, relationality. Um, and and I guess I can get back into that. Uh, a bit better later with a, a, a bit more proofs, etc. Um, to completely destroy that, um, to kill a bunch of people, steal a bunch of land, uh, destroy that land, exponentially grow, um, create these hierarchies, create caste systems that didn't exist before, uh, basically map this on top of everything else, and then turn around and invent the idea of human rights or something and <laughs> it's like you know uh it's it's like a, a turd wrapped in silk it's like here <laughs> we're gonna we, we, we're gonna give you these human rights oh it's like no no the western enlightenment's so cool because you know we're developing this idea of the equality of the rights of man <laughs> i don't know um i think i think 
people get pissed about the hypocrisy of that and the and the arrogance of it you know um and i think that's why that's why there, there is so much resistance and and kind of just i don't know it's just we're all doing the trump workshop like i said and so nobody's listened to anybody before nobody's listened to women before nobody's listened to you know uh, any of these groups that have been completely annihilated and smashed by these civilizations you know they've never been listened to before so it's like fuck it we'll do the we'll use our trump wmds and we'll just act like complete idiots <laughs> you know what i mean um so you know when you see all those youtube videos of you know sjw's making no sense and getting owned by someone who's using logic or whatever it's just like nobody's listened to logic before you know we've done so much indigenous scholarship here there have been so many reports and reports and reports and oh god damn it so much research so much data so many recommendations so many that's everything and and they're never followed you know policy doesn't follow that you know so to then just sort of turn around and go oh yeah but you know this colony's bringing you human rights you know for the first time <laughs> you should be really grateful for this you know we're bringing you we're, we're bringing you equality fuck off <laughs> We we're, had we're not even we're not even bringing you equality. We're giving you a ticket yeah. to stand in yeah. line, and probably and it's a long line. And and we just want Any, you to calm the fuck down. Anybody yeah. who's celebrating how fucking, you know what I mean? It's it's like yes, yes, yes. This there were a lot of mistakes made, but you know the Enlightenment. You know it did bring, it did bring about equality for the first time. No, it 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 either ah. It didn't bring it about. You created the inequality. Even in your own society, you created that inequality. And then you provided a few things to throw to people as window dressing to give them hope, you know, or a sense of protection. Or you provided these rights frameworks in order to externalize. We've talked about this before, you know, to externalize the damage from your system, from your caste system that, that you need to have or your economy can't grow. And your economy needs to grow or your civilization will collapse. It's just ah, it's just bullshit. And look, here's where here's where a lot of the people, like the really good thinkers, um, you know, there's there's still that little germ in there. The really good thinkers who are trying to change things, who are trying to create a, you know, a game B, a different way of being in the world, you know, the new systems of governance and and economies that will actually um you know, be sustainable and will be good for everybody. Really good project. Nobody else I know or nothing I've seen is 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 even getting close. You know, mm -hmm. um, no, no, but, no, but I think me. I think it's a blind spot. It's a blind spot um, to still be trying to put the Enlightenment, etc., on a pedestal. You know, um, I, I and I feel like for some people. Some people are attracted to that kind of movement, I think, just out of a sense of, ah, um, okay, so how can we change things in a way that I get to keep my shit? <laughs> like, uh, so a lot of people have- I think, I think uh, a lot of Silicon Valley libertarians are all about that. And, and this yeah. isn't just material capital. It's like, yes, of course, I'll keep my material capital, just like all the white South Africans have kept all of theirs, you know, 
um, oh, we'll, we'll do truth and reconciliation, you know, <laughs> whereby, you know, as long as you talk about, you tell how many people you murdered to make that money, we'll let you keep the fucking money. You know, it's the same thing. So uh, we're not talking about capital. I'm not just talking about the, the wealth, the material wealth. I'm talking about people's intellectual and cultural capital. You know, so people who have status through those things are sort of starting to go, oh, like people don't like this anymore. Um, you know, everything's falling apart. It's anarchy. We're going to have to, how am I going to keep all my shit? How will I keep my capital? So yeah, I can, yeah, I can yeah. certainly, I can certainly understand why people would be looking to, you know, do that. But at the same time, I, I'm, I'm right in there with them because I have this, I'm just coming with a different motivation because I have a sense of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, there's, there's good stuff in there. You don't want to lose that. Well, good stuff in where in the enlightenment in where, in, uh, Western enlightenment, the, you know, Renaissance, you know, the whole thing. I quite like Dante. <laughs> and I wouldn't, wouldn't like to see a world without him in it. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm curious, right? I mean, for me, right, I I have put a bit of a, you know, I wouldn't stake in the ground, it's far too melodramatic, but I mean, like the notion that there is something in the seeds of the mm -hmm. enlightenment, of extension of rights and values beyond peasants and serfs and feudalism and that kind of thing, that was yeah. valuable. It sounds like you're saying, hey, there was a fork in the road earlier where you yeah. guys jumped the shark, right? Yeah. So the question <laughs> is, is, is that the, if the way out is through, right, we can't wind back yeah. clocks, at least in that branch. Yes. Yeah. What I'm hearing you saying is saying for a time immemorial, indigenous societies had more egalitarianism, had greater yeah. gender balance, had, had look, functioning look, ecologies time, of being. We've experimented with, uh, you know, unequal systems the same way, you know, that, that rears its ugly head every now and then, but that it doesn't last long. You know, the law of the land takes care of that. Look, and I, I keep seeing, there are a lot of scholars who are kind of proving that no, no, indigenous people were just as hierarchical and just as tyrannical and, you know, just as caste system based, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and, and I just get sick of reading through. I'm like, Oh, when's this chapter going to end? Cause it, I mean, it, cause I, I've lost interest right from the start when it sort of says, Oh, well, when did this happen? This tribe that you're studying, you know, um, you're accounting the history of oh in the yeah in the 1800s in the 1800s these these tribes started you know amalgamating into one big kingdom and developing a caste system and all this stuff like in new guinea and ah there's heaps of them but it it always seems to happen just at the moment when colonists arrive like oh just innocently and walking around in their pith helmets going oh, hello hello nice to meet you lovely um no, Ter terribly sorry oh, we're going to take all your things kingdom. oh you made a pyramid you're chopping off the head it's like oh come on man <laughs> can you not see that that's a variable that your arrival is a variable and that you didn't just arrive like you took a massive piece of the coastline and disrupt like displaced like eight tribes and killed a bunch of people and then the refugees from that are fleeing into the interior where there's no fucking space for them and uh you know and that completely disrupts everything Everybody's got to try and take these people in. Everything's disrupted. Everything's mixed up. And, um, you know, somebody realizes we're going to be, we're going to need to be able to, um, have a large standing army like these 
invading pricks have. So we're going to have to band together and form a different kind of civilization. And then these fucking early anth- uh, amateur anthropologists come in and, you know, take all that data down and go, oh, look, see, they're just, uh, they're doing in the same thing as nature. we're doing. Yeah, this they're is the same thing as we're doing. They're just uh, not doing it as well because they're primitives. They have smaller brains, blah, blah, blah. On we go. And, ah, so I, I'm actually sick of people putting putting those up as examples, you know. Um, just to, and what's the point of that? Well, you're just trying to debunk the, you know, these entire languages and cultures that are built on relationality. Um, so I, I, you know, I did an interview with a Samoan fellow yesterday who was talking about the concept of va, um, you know, and that is the space in between two siblings, basically, at its smallest unit. So people ask me all the time, well, you know, so you, your indigenous models, you know, of a community, yet that's good and that works, but it doesn't, it can't scale past the Dunbar number. How we, how do you scale it? Because this is the Dunbar thing, you know, once you get more than 150 or 300 people, then the transparency thing isn't there. So the trust isn't there and the system breaks down and it doesn't work. Well, I, I usually show people in a Fernley to show the basic units of that and then how they actually fractally uh, repeat out. Uh, so basically you have a, um, uh, so you're an autonomous person, you know, but you're linked to this other autonomous person. And this is exactly the same as the Samoan idea of va. You know, you have that relation there. So there is a, um, so you're a pair. And then that actually comes out into this sort of network of pairs. So each person is an autonomous, a completely autonomous entity that belongs to a collective. That collective itself is an autonomous entity that is linked to other uh, collectives. Uh, And that cluster of collectives is an autonomous entity that is linked to others. You kind of see the fractal nature of it. Not, not so only that, do I see it, I, I, I quote you extensively on exactly this section, that notion yeah. of kinship pairs, so, finding other kinship pairs, and then expanding into yeah. these. So that's how, it, that's how it scales. That's how indigenous governance and economic models scale. They scale fractally. And it, it's always that, that relation. And there's a kind of uh, a, 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 a mutually assured um, creation. <laughs> mm. Not mutually assured well, destruction. There's a mutually assured creation because you're both bound within that relation to do that, or you, or you're both finished. You know. So there's that vat, that space in between two siblings, and you're, um, that's where all your knowledge as a pair sits, and you are bound, you know, within your culture, uh, cultural obligations to beautify that space, uh, mm. to uh, basically increase the combinatorials in that space to increase the complexity of knowledge in that space um, and then out to, you know, the next people that you're connected to. And so all your relations, and I'm talking even with non-human relations, you know, your relationship to places um, and to, you know, uh, non-human animals, plants, etc. you know, um, you're bound by those relations. All your knowledge sits there. It doesn't sit in your brain. Your mind is in your, in those relational spaces. You're bound to do that. So everything in your bioregion, you know, that's that one entity, and that's autonomous and has spirit. That networks across in, with with the next bioregion, or with a bioregion on the other side of Australia. These are all connected uh, on our continent by song lines, 
you know. Um, and so this is a, an, a, like an internal map, mapping. It's also in the landscape that you have it in your mind as a map. And it's in song form, and it's but it's also visual. It's it's narrative, um, but it's 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 very accurate. So I was talking to an auntie the other night, and her grandfather uh, was a blind man who did the um, thousands thousands kilometers walk. You know, um, he used to he did it six times in his life while he was blind. Wow! Uh, on his on his own, he sang his way along those songline maps. From Western Australia to Uluru at the center of Australia. And he did that trip six six times because he was a senior man who had to go for ceremony. Um, wow. Yeah, just absolutely amazing. And just being able to have that such relational uh, connections with every entity of every animal, every plant along that way, that you even blind, you'd be able to forage enough food to do that, you know. This is the kind of relationality that we're talking about. Um, so, yeah, we had that. And I guess, you know, yeah, we're very grateful that you're bringing us human rights. <laughs> Thanks. It's awesome. You know, yeah, we keep that bit. It's, it's, you know, we'll keep that part. We'll keep the human rights. It's, that's a good idea. You invented that. We'll give you that. There you go. You can have that. We'll say you invented that. Just please stop hitting us. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so so this is one that um we, we can you know this is ours we can kind of conclude with this but it's um you know in san tokyo i think you 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 talked about that you talked about <coughs> the busyness the cleverness the the constant yeah. striving to solve things fix things build things change things versus slowing down listening focus on focusing on relatedness and connectedness um and and yet right and and, and, there, and there have been you know whether it's chief joseph you know saying i will fight no more forever whether it's you know single and crazy horse it's the dalai lama in his response to the chinese like maybe this is part of the process mm. and you know and all the way to david reich and the genetic constant churn of migration and settlement and conquest and assimilation and all these things um, if indigenous thinking is to save the world, but it has been so violently outcompeted by dominator hierarchies, how how do we create the space for it, or how do we change the parameters of that of that contest? I mean, and I you know even in languaging it, I'm collapsing it into certain thought forms but how how do how would we create space going forward for more of that um bioregional you know place-based community-based connectivity given that in the last four or five hundred years as maladaptive as it is colonial technologically enabled colonialism and conquest has actually outcompeted other subtler potentially more sustainable life ways. Mm. <sighs> well, look, you know, we're surviving this and we're, we're keeping all this for you. Yeah. For your future generations, we're, we're keeping all this knowledge for you and we'll still be here and it'll still, it'll still be there. 
I don't know if, uh, you know, uh, the temperature will be, <laughs> you know, conducive to life by that, that stage or, or anything. But, um, yeah, no, we're here. And, you know, a lot of us are angry and a lot of us are dysfunctional, but, um, but we're angry and dysfunctional as individuals. You know, um, you know, as communities, we don't really care what one individual knows or holds in their head you know, their expertise or their knowledge or anything like that. Like anything that I know is that's community property that belongs to my community. And so that's known in the community and that's part of our community knowledge. And that will be passed on to the next generation. Um, so our community still has all this knowledge. There's no single individual who knows it all, but uh, it still resides in our communities. And basically, you know, engaging and belonging in a community like that and engaging an entire community of minds is the only way you can unlock that or access it. You know, so I guess, I guess when you figure out, you know, how to come as a community, you know, uh, to sit with a community, then, then yeah, it's, it's all there for you. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, also, you know, dialogue. Uh, so I was telling that Samoan fella yesterday that, um, you know, a, a lot of my clan, uh, the women's dances in in ceremony uh like the same ceremonies we've done forever but a lot of the dances have changed the women's dances are hula now so in 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 north queensland uh because of the amount of exchange cultural exchange that's happened with um with polynesia uh women are now in over the last few decades have started dancing the hula and and that that's the dance that most women do in in ceremony Hmm. Yeah. yeah and so yeah <clears throat> we have we have a lot of you know it's still the same culture but you know we have a lot of different exchange happening with different technologies different ways of being all these kinds of things these happen all the time uh this is what we've always done as human beings you know we do this and communities interact this like this amazing you know hybridities that emerge and and, uh, but, you know, they do emerge slowly and caref carefully. You can't just, oh, I can do CRISPR. So let's make that and then we'll figure out um, <laughs> what kind of regulations we need to put in place to stop it from, like, killing everything and everyone. <laughs> you know, it's like before you make CRISPR, <laughs> you sit down, <laughs> everybody sits down, like, for a long time. Like there's ten years, there's ten years of yarns to be had before you even put that thing together, um, at least. Mm. Well, well, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. You can't just make the thing. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm I'm gonna take some comfort in your story of hula, but also how that connects to, you said you know, members of a clan going to South America and finding their long lost cousins yeah. and the sharing and the cross pollination and the making it to Hawaii and the sharing of sanctioned you know, cults, community violence. And, and even just the fact that you're, you're saying, Hey, we're not going anywhere. I mean, you, you, we can yeah. have romantic stories of noble savages and, 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 and reservations or tragedy, whatever. That's still us all still telling more stories. Um, yeah. but what, but what can we do? Well, just that you guys are still where you are, 
being who you are, keeping the stories alive, and and holding the wisdom in the aggregate yeah. in the generations. That's and it. perhaps we can keep we can keep on keeping on. Yeah. Um, together. Yeah. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.